You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. Welcome to the Age of Napoleon. Episode 70, Concord. Thanks for joining me. Before we get started, I'll remind you once again that you can listen to this and all future episodes ad-free by pledging at least $2 a month on Patreon.com. Anyway. We left off last time with a momentous event the signing of the Concordat of 1801, an agreement which finally ended ten years of conflict between revolutionary France and the Vatican, at least officially. When news of the deal spread around the world, it was greeted with joy, but also surprise. People had begun to think of the conflict between the Church and the Revolution as intractable, a natural process which would continue until one of the combatants inevitably destroyed the other. Now there was a truce, and not only that, plans for extensive future collaboration. Of course, this new relationship still had yet to be tested, but the very fact of its existence was stunning. It was almost like the Church had abruptly announced a ceasefire with Satan. There could be no question that this was one of the greatest achievements of Napoleon's young political career. When the Concordat was signed, he had only been in power for about a year and a half. The agreement very nearly didn't happen. It had taken remarkable luck just to create the opening for negotiations to begin. Pope Pius VI had died at just the right time to turn the page on the Church's terrible relationship with Paris. Napoleon needed some grand gesture to signal his good intentions towards the Vatican, and there was the body of the former pope in need of a Catholic funeral. Then, the vagaries of Vatican politics had thrown up a surprise successor. Cardinal Chiaramonti, now Pope Pius VII, was much more open to compromise with the French, and much less beholden to the Holy Roman Emperor than any of the other candidates. Both Napoleon and Pius VII were at the beginning of their reigns, and thus had good political reasons to put this destructive conflict in the past so they could focus on their own agendas. Still, even with this confluence of events bringing the two sides together, a positive outcome was certainly not inevitable. Talks dragged on for months, and the Vatican even replaced their chief negotiator midway through the process, 
not a good sign. However, both sides persisted, and compromise was finally achieved. There's some confusion as to what date the Concordat was actually signed. The Vatican representative, Cardinal Consalvi, agreed to Napoleon's terms after a marathon negotiating session of nearly 24 hours. By the time Consalvi finally broke down, it was the dead of the night on July 15th, and it may actually have been after midnight, and thus technically the 16th, by the time the cardinal finally put ink to paper. Joseph Bonaparte had been in charge of the final push. Napoleon left them much earlier in the evening, after one of his trademark aggressive tirades, in which he threatened that unless Consalvi signed the deal, quote, Rome will cry tears of blood, end quote. Perhaps that creative bit of imagery left an impression, or perhaps Consalvi was simply worn down by months of this type of treatment. Whatever the case, the Bonapartes got their signature. I'd like to take a moment to dwell on the significance of the Concordat. In past episodes, we've talked a lot about the promises Napoleon made to the French people. Napoleon was not a traditional political leader. He had not come to power through the usual channels. But just like all politicians, he had sold himself to the people of France with a set of promises. And, just like all politicians, he would be judged by the public and the rest of the political system on how well he fulfilled those promises. Perhaps the biggest one had to do with the future of the revolution. The basic premise of the Napoleonic regime was that he would allow the people of France to have their cake and eat it too. That he would end all of the negative consequences of the revolution, the political instability, civil conflict, and warfare and intense rivalry with other great powers, without losing any of the positive outcomes of the revolution, like rational governance, equality before the law, meritocracy, and popular sovereignty. The Concordat represented a powerful argument that Napoleon was keeping his promises. He had ended the conflict with the Vatican without really giving up anything of substance, certainly nothing that threatened the core values of the revolution or the supremacy of the state, nothing which might potentially violate his promises to the French people. When we try to assess the meaning and significance of the Concordat, I think it's easiest to look at things in the short, medium, and long term. In the short term, there's not much more to say. This was widely perceived as a triumph for Napoleon, for reasons that are probably clear. Bonaparte's policy of outreach and reconciliation towards the opponents of the revolution seemed to be paying dividends, exactly as he and his supporters had claimed it would. Think of the way Napoleon had sold himself to the people of France, as a peacemaker, as a man who could solve the seemingly incurable social problems caused by the revolution, while preserving its gains, and as a unifying figure who could rally the whole country to his banner. The signing of the Concordat hit all of these notes. Napoleon was riding high in public opinion, perhaps higher than ever before, both at home and abroad although obviously it's difficult and a bit anachronistic to talk about public opinion with any certainty before the advent of modern polling and mass media. 
This wasn't just a matter of perception. The Concordat really had strengthened Napoleon's hand. Catholicism was one of the most important forces in France. For the last ten years, that force had been pulling in the opposite direction of the government. The church had been a thorn in the side of each successive revolutionary government, a rival for political power and for the loyalty of the people, a source of counter-revolutionary sedition, and sometimes even a willing tool for the intelligence services of hostile powers. In most societies, religion is a source of stability. In France, it had become a hub of instability. In theory, at least, the Concordat would change that equation completely. Rather than acting as a thorn in Napoleon's side, the French Catholic Church was now sworn to be a loyal partner. The Church and the government would be pulling together in the same direction for the first time in ten years. A former source of instability would become part of the foundation of the new regime. On paper, at least, it was an elegant solution, a negative converted into a positive. But of course, the degree to which Napoleon and the Catholic Church would become genuine collaborators remained to be seen. It's hard to find any kind of objective metric for measuring the Concordat. True reconciliation occurs slowly in the hearts of individual people. We can only get indirect glimpses of this process. We do know that thousands of counter-revolutionary rebels finally laid down their arms after nearly a decade of resistance to the government, and thousands of émigrés returned from abroad. But it's worth mentioning that this process was already well underway by the summer of 1801, when the Concordat was signed. As we've seen in past episodes, Napoleon's outreach to the Vatican was only one part of a broader program. That broader program did seem to be working, but it's impossible to say with any certainty which particular aspect of the project was responsible for the success. Personally, I don't think you can discount the fact that these counter-revolutionaries were worn out by nearly a decade of bitter resistance. The thousands of fresh Republican troops Napoleon sent to areas with rebel activity and the harsh justice of the special military tribunals were probably potent motivators as well. Still, the bottom line was this. One of the most controversial aspects of the revolution was gone. One of the primary justifications for conservative resistance to the government no longer held true. Napoleon had promised bold action, and the Concordat was undeniably bold action. No previous revolutionary government had made any significant progress towards healing the schism with Rome. Not only had Napoleon done it, it hadn't even taken him very long. Only about a year and a half had passed between the coup of 18 Brumaire and the signing of the Concordat. And he'd managed to end the conflict on his own terms securing a deal that was very favorable to Paris. In the short term, it was hard to dispute that this was a massive victory for Bonaparte. But let's broaden our perspective and look at the medium-term impact of the Concordat. The French population generally welcomed the Concordat, or at the very least, considered it an improvement over the status quo. But that was not universal. 
anti-Vatican attitudes were still widespread in France. Even many people who supported the idea of reconciliation in principle remained wary of the church, which was still quite powerful, and would inevitably grow even more powerful once it could operate in the open once again. There were those in France who believed the Concordat was a mistake. True, the terms seemed quite favorable to the French government, but the Catholic Church is nothing if not persistent and patient. Opponents of the Concordat worried that it was nothing but a Trojan horse. Now that Napoleon had let Catholicism through the gates, the Church would insidiously reassert itself and retake its former position in French society. These people did not have much of an alternative. The religious policies of successive revolutionary governments had all failed to uproot Catholicism from the population. The confrontational, sometimes even eccentric policies of the Jacobins had failed, and the more moderate policies of the Directory had failed as well. Something had to change. But in the minds of some committed opponents of Catholicism, even the broken, pre-Concordat status quo was preferable to any agreement which allowed the Church to operate within French borders. The good news for Napoleon was that there were not very many of these people. This was not a widely held opinion outside of the educated classes and the few remnants of France's radical left. The bad news was that those people were disproportionately influential. They could be found within the political system, the bureaucracy, and the army, sometimes at the very highest levels of leadership. We don't typically think of these types of institutions as hotbeds of radicalism, far from it. But remember, in France at the dawn of the 19th century, they were all staffed by ex-revolutionaries. Many of the men who now filled the senior ranks of France's political and military establishment had launched their careers out of a desire to build and maintain revolutionary principles and destroy the old order. Almost all of them had moderated and grown more cynical with age, but many still clung to aspects of their old revolutionary faith, and in many cases, that meant residual hostility towards Catholicism. These men may have given up on the loftiest utopian dreams of their youth, but that did not mean they were ready to embrace their former enemies. After all, what had all the struggle of the last ten years been for if they were going to just let the Catholic Church waltz right back into the country? This conflict might seem a bit familiar, because we discussed a similar phenomenon with regard to the civil code, which was initially rejected by the liberal opposition in the legislature. This is a big part of the reason Napoleon had to treat those liberal politicians with kid gloves. On their own, they might have been relatively toothless, but they did represent this constituency of people who Bonaparte couldn't really afford to alienate, his own army officers, senior civil servants, and political officials. Many within Napoleon's personal inner circle harbored Republican and anti-religious beliefs as well. Bonaparte always claimed he acted in the name of the people and the public interest, not as a private individual. But I think everyone, even Napoleon, is susceptible to the influence of their friends and loved ones. No one rules alone, not even a dictator. Napoleon had to rely on these people. 
Fortunately for Bonaparte, there wasn't any organized left-wing resistance waiting in the wings to capitalize on these feelings. But that didn't mean he could totally ignore these objections from the left. And so, out of deference to the sensibilities of his revolutionary comrades, Napoleon chose to soft-pedal the announcement of one of his greatest diplomatic triumphs. He kept the signing of the Concordat secret for months, while he laid the political groundwork for the announcement. The biggest component of that groundwork was the so-called Organic Articles. These were a set of over a hundred different government regulations on the practice of religion within France, which would be introduced to the legislature alongside the Concordat. The details of the Organic Articles are relatively insignificant to us. The important thing was the diplomatic and political implications of their introduction. Napoleon claimed he was merely translating the Concordat into law, that the Organic Articles were nothing more than an enforcement mechanism for the agreement signed with Rome. But this was a fig leaf. It was clear to everyone, including the Vatican, that the Organic Articles represented a significant revision of the Concordat which, in practice, would make the deal even less favorable to the Vatican. Napoleon was in breach of the deal before it even went into force. The Pope was furious. And that's exactly what Napoleon wanted. He was showing off for his liberal critics, underlining the fact that this agreement was imposed on the Vatican by the French, not vice versa. Sure enough, Pope Pius VII objected strenuously, but was unwilling to back out of the agreement. Napoleon won, and had shown the entire world who held the stronger hand. This little bit of political theater seems to have helped sell the deal to his liberal critics. There was a lot of grumbling and complaining about the Concordat, but no significant opposition. However, Bonaparte's desire to secure his left flank had led him to dramatically undermine the Concordat and his new relationship with the Church. It did not bode well for the future of Franco-Vatican relations. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. The first real concrete test of the new spirit of cooperation between the Catholic Church and the Napoleonic regime came with the appointment of new bishops for France. During the 1790s, there had been two competing sets of French bishops, a pro-revolutionary group, appointed by Paris, and a pro-Vatican group, selected by the Pope, with each claiming to be the legitimate leaders of the French Church. Under the terms of the Concordat, both groups would be dissolved, 
and a new, legitimate class of bishops would be appointed, with input from both sides. These new appointees would include former pro-revolutionary bishops and former pro-Vatican bishops, as well as a number of new men who had never served as bishops before under either regime. This was all decided at the Concordat. The exact numbers which would come from each group were to be determined through negotiation at a later date. Both sides expected this negotiation to be easy, and for good reason. This should have been a very straightforward exercise. You come up with a number, I come up with a number, then we negotiate until we can agree to meet in the middle. Simple, right? In fact, this turned out to be a torturous, months-long process. There was too much pride and too much money on the table, and too much bad blood between the two sides. It certainly didn't help that Napoleon was already busy undermining the deal to appease his liberal critics. These fraught negotiations over the new bishops turned out to be a preview of the difficulties in healing France's religious schism. Former pro-revolutionary priests and former pro-Vatican priests were now called upon to work together within the same organization, as if they hadn't been on opposite sides of a brutal civil war for the last decade. Those who had supported the Republic often claimed they were marginalized and discriminated against by their colleagues who had sided with the Pope, and pro-Vatican priests said the same thing about their Republican colleagues. This tension will remain in the background for the rest of our story. For his part, Napoleon never really came around to trusting the church. Right up until the end of his regime, he remained skeptical of priests, and especially of the Vatican. Even as he moved closer to Catholicism in his own personal life, he remained something of a Jacobin at heart when it came to matters of religion. Just another one of the many contradictions in Napoleon's character. As I've already mentioned, Many in Napoleon's government shared this skepticism of organized religion, and Catholicism in particular. Priests suspected of anti-government sympathies or underground political activity were a favorite target of the police. In the minds of the public, the church remained broadly associated with the counter-revolution, the monarchy, and the old regime even though people were aware, and grateful, that the religious conflict was finally over. So this was not exactly the harmonious reconciliation envisioned by Napoleon's propaganda. Much of the tension which had originally driven the revolution into conflict with the church remained, even if it was now obscured by the Concordat. This episode will not be the last time we talk about hostilities between Napoleonic France and the Catholic Church. Forgive the spoiler, but Pius VII, who shared so much of his worldview in common with Napoleon, will ultimately excommunicate him in 1809. France would never return to the type of brutal, barbaric religious violence of the 1790s. That was partially thanks to the Concordat, and Napoleon's broader project of reconciling Catholics to his regime. This was a real significant achievement. For many of Napoleon's supporters, it was all the proof they needed that he was the man to lead France. But what about people who didn't support Napoleon, 
What about the average French Catholic who had been hostile to the revolution due to its anti-religious policies? Remember, Napoleon didn't just want peace between French Catholics and the government. He wanted to bring them into the fold and turn their skepticism into genuine support for his regime. As we've seen, many elite Catholics, like the writer François-René de Chateaubriand, who we discussed last episode, were eager to return to France and turn the page on their opposition to the government. They found Napoleon eager to welcome them home. Obviously, some of this was opportunistic. He wanted to entice them back to strengthen his regime. But some of it was genuine. Napoleon never had much of a problem with the type of cerebral, refined Catholicism practiced by Chateaubriand and people like him. After all, Napoleon did believe in God himself, and even sometimes claimed to be a Catholic, although he was a very idiosyncratic and impious one. He had a lot in common with men like Chateaubriand. They just happened to come down on different sides of some important philosophical questions. Napoleon wasn't childish or fanatical. He understood that thinking people of goodwill might have disagreements on profound, complicated questions. In fact, he relished a good debate on a dense subject. But for most people in France, religion was not fodder for the next week's salon. It was something fundamentally different experienced and conceptualized in a fundamentally different way. The men who had taken up arms to fight for their religion against the revolution had never read Chateaubriand. Their faith did not come from reason or argument. It was not an intellectual position. The vast majority of French Catholics experienced their religion out in the world, not reading a book alone in a study. They attended Mass, obviously, but that was just one component of public religious expression. Peasants stopped by roadside shrines or chapels on their way to the fields in the morning or on their way home at night to say a prayer or offer some token of devotion. People made pilgrimage to holy sites. That could mean anything from a short walk outside the village to an arduous journey that could take years. The church could also come to you in the form of traveling preachers. There were orders of monks who actually specialized in this type of evangelization, and their performances could be quite elaborate and entertaining, perhaps not too far from the Protestant revival shows which became popular in 19th century America. People attended religious festivals, which could mean anything from a carnival atmosphere to a solemn funeral-like procession. There were a lot of these scattered throughout the year, depending on local custom. According to some estimates, the average French peasant took the day off for a religious festival more often than the average American today takes vacation time from work. Part of the reason the Jacobins had tried to suppress the old Christian calendar was to break the link between the common people and the Catholic Church created by these enormously popular festivals. French peasant Catholicism could be wild and mythic, nothing like the enlightened, empirical Catholicism of Chateaubriand. Out on the fringes of society, Christian religion often came with overtones of magic and hints of past pagan superstition. 
pregnant women made offerings at secret holy places in the woods to ensure a safe, healthy birth. Pious peasants gave shelter and support to half-mad holy men who might offer prophecies or claim a special relationship with some saint or the Virgin Mary or God himself. People venerated unofficial local saints not recognized by the Vatican. A person might consider him or herself a good Catholic while also believing in fairies, spirits, and witchcraft. They might not even see the difference between unofficial folk religion and official Vatican orthodoxy. There is an account of drought-stricken farmers threatening the statue of a saint with physical violence if the saint refused to bring the reins. For townspeople or wealthier peasants, people who were closer to official Vatican-endorsed religious practice, there were a whole host of lay organizations, which allowed regular people to participate in Catholic worship beyond simply attending Mass, under the supervision and guidance of the clergy. This was how the vast majority of French Catholics experienced their faith. It was woven into the fabric of their daily lives. It was an all-encompassing worldview, which gave a sense of order and a source of meaning. If Napoleon truly wanted to rally French Catholics around his regime, all French Catholics, not just the Chateaubriands of the world, he would have to find some way to reach out to the common people, too. Unfortunately for the regime, and for France, that never happened. On many occasions, Napoleon offered olive branches to the elite Catholic intellectuals or to the Vatican, but there were precious few for the great mass of the faithful. Under the Concordat, public expressions of religious faith remained highly regulated. Many remained banned. There would be no public celebrations for religious festivals. Out of all the Christian holidays which had once punctuated the French calendar, the government agreed to recognize a grand total of one, Easter Sunday. Even Christmas and Good Friday would just be normal working days. Parish priests were allowed to operate relatively freely, but many religious orders remained banned. The monasteries remained closed, as did many smaller churches and chapels. Bonaparte wanted to create a Catholicism that was cloistered away from the rest of society. It would be there for men like Chateaubriand, who needed it for their conscience, but safely out of the public sphere, where it would not annoy the sensibilities of free thinkers or threaten public order. This type of tamed, absent Catholicism did have some appeal to the educated middle classes, but for the great mass of the French faithful, this was nothing more than a poor and mostly inaccessible substitute for the genuine article. They experienced Catholicism out in the world, in public. And so, a totally state-dominated, secular public sphere felt oppressive to many. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. 
purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. The simple fact was, Napoleon had never and would never understand this type of religious faith. Not only that, I think he actually held it in contempt. He could understand Chateaubriand, a man like himself, an independent thinker who had applied his powers of observation and analysis to the world, and come to slightly different conclusions from Napoleon's. Bonaparte could wrap his head around that. He could respect that. But most religious people do not come to their faith through cold logic and rational argument. They feel it in their bones and see its presence in their lives. Bonaparte frequently dismissed this type of faith as superstition or denounced it as fanaticism. This was actually a relatively popular subject for him, something he was known to harp on. He hated, and I think actually feared, deep religious faith. With all his erudition and knowledge, Napoleon was able to convince himself that he had put aside all the anti-religious feelings of his revolutionary youth, but I think many of those opinions still lurked in the back of his mind, now camouflaged under less offensive labels. Where the young Napoleon might have denounced all organized religion as backwards barbarism, 30-something First Consul Bonaparte might speak of fanaticism or superstition, maintaining his general hostility towards faith, but implicitly exempting religious people who he considered reasonable. Napoleon was willing to reach out to the Pope and to his Catholic peers, but he still fundamentally considered Catholicism, as practiced by most French people, to be misguided, vaguely contemptible, and in need of correction. In private, Napoleon referred to the Concordat as an inoculation against religion, and hoped that it would lead to the extinction of all religion in France within 50 years. He did not do as good a job as he thought at concealing his contempt. Many French Catholics heard it loud and clear. There was no serious outreach to average Catholics. The Concordat was welcome news in the strongly conservative Catholic regions of France, but only because it represented the end of a bitter war which had cost the people dearly. Large numbers of Catholics would eventually come to support Napoleon's regime, but for those who did, it was in spite of his religious policies, not because of them. In the end, to keep the peace in heavily Catholic regions of France, Napoleon simply lowered their military conscription quotas. They may not have liked him, but as long as he wasn't taking their sons for his wars, people in the Vendée and similar regions of France were willing to acquiesce to Napoleonic rule. So, peace between the French church and the Napoleonic government was possible, but true fusion between the regime and average Catholics was not. When we look at the medium-term impact of the Concordat, cracks begin to appear in that image of total triumph. Peace is one thing. Truly finding common ground with a former adversary is something else. Napoleon and the Pope were able to achieve the former, but the latter proved elusive. So that just leaves the long-term impact of the Concordat. I don't want to dwell on this too much. 
Napoleon will only be in power for another 14 years, so the long term is by definition mostly outside the scope of our story. But this subject is so important to later French history that I think it's worth at least touching on. The Concordat of 1801 remained the baseline for Franco-Vatican relations for over a hundred years, until it was finally superseded by the Law on Separation of the Churches and the State in 1905. However, in 1905, the regions of Alsace and Moselle were part of the German Empire after being seized in the Franco-Prussian War. In those provinces, the Germans honored the terms of the Concordat, and, when they were returned to France after the First World War, the French government never got around to extending the 1905 law to the new provinces. So, technically speaking, the Concordat of 1801 is still in force today in eastern France, just past its 219th birthday at the time of this recording, and still going strong, although obviously it has been reformed beyond all recognition. From a certain perspective, I suppose that makes the Concordat a smashing success. It's very rare for any diplomatic agreement to last over two centuries, even in heavily modified form. But those of you who know your 19th century French history are aware that the Concordat did not represent any kind of permanent settlement between the forces of secularism and the forces of political religion. It was a temporary truce that set the agenda for another round of struggle. The combination of the Concordat, Napoleon's personal popularity, and simple exhaustion after ten years of civil war were enough to push this conflict to the back burner for the duration of our story. But for most of the 19th century, it was on a rolling boil. This history we've discussed in the last few episodes is a big reason many 19th and even early 20th century French conservatives rejected the Republic and embraced anti-democratic, far-right politics. They continued to see the secular Republican state, in any form, as an impediment to the practice of true religion. Napoleon had been unwilling to reach out to these people, so perhaps we can't blame them for continuing to see themselves as alienated from the central government. Much of the political instability in France between the fall of Napoleon and the Second World War can be traced to the underlying social schism between religious right and secular left created by the revolution. Americans often complain that we're tired of the constant culture wars, which have played such a big role in our politics since the late 60s. Imagine how the French feel about dealing with culture wars from the 1790s. Napoleon claimed to be the leader of the entire French nation, whatever their politics or religious beliefs, wherever they lived and whatever their class. He was indeed able to build a powerful political coalition and draw supporters from all corners of society. But the failures of the Concordat show the limits of this approach to politics. Even Napoleon Bonaparte, at the height of his powers and popularity, was not able to do much more than temporarily paper over these deep divisions which had been laid bare during the Revolution. Ultimately, France was divided by grand social and political trends far outside the control of any one man, forces which had been building since long before Napoleon was born 
and would continue their work long after his death. It's tempting to look at the Concordat as a failure, but under those circumstances, what else could it have been? Perhaps we should be celebrating Napoleon and Pope Pius for stubbornly chasing after peace, despite the tides of history pulling them towards conflict. True reconciliation may have been impossible, but at least they were able to bring some semblance of social harmony to a country that desperately needed it. That's all for now. Until next time, thanks for listening. So I, I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, I'm here for you. So bother me when no one's listening, because I will. Bother me when it feels like it won't get better, because it can. Bother me because you're never a bother. Whether it's a low point or a crisis, get help for yourself or a friend. Learn more at neverabother.org or call or text 988, available 24-7. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today.